so one of the things that, uh, that you'll uh, learn about me pretty, pretty quickly after you get to know me is that I, I love art. I've always loved art. When I was a kid, I, I wanted to be an artist. Uh, there's still some pictures running around uh, that I drew when I was a kid. I think my grandma probably has them framed in her house or something of like little landscapes, pencil drawings into the sun. And there was always glasses. I'd always draw glasses on the sun because I'm so creative. Uh, and... Uh, and I'm not sure, maybe it was a premonition or something, I'm not sure, but, uh, but I loved art. I actually wanted to be an artist really all the way up through high school, but about senior year of high school, I started to, to question that a little bit. I was like, I really love art and, and still want to be an artist, yet uh, I, I'd like to have a family someday and you know be able to like provide food and shelter for them. And so I changed to, I wanted to be an architect. So I went into architecture school and that's what I was before I came into ministry. Now I know, uh, let me just, as a disclaimer, if there's anyone here that's like an art major and you just heard me say that and you're like, I think what he was telling me in the sermon today was that I'm supposed to change my major to architecture. Don't do that. Um, you're probably a way better artist than I ever was. Don't change your major. That's not what this sermon's about. Uh, you're a great artist. Uh, keep up the good work. Um, but, uh, but, but that's what it was for me. One of my favorite artists uh, right now is a lady by the name of Janet Eckelman. That name may be familiar if you listen to a lot of TED Talks. Uh, she's got a very, a very popular one right now, and uh, I, I think her art is, is just ridiculous. Uh, here's, here's a picture of, she's a sculptor, and she makes these massive sculptures. This is uh, in Boston, and it's, uh, it's 600 feet long, and so just to give you a sense of scale, and yes, I recognize uh, that that looks a little bit like bacon, um, but someone pointed that out earlier. I was like, oh man, it does kind of look like bacon, uh, but it's far more beautiful than that. And so uh, here's how it's made. It's, it's made of a uh, hundred miles worth of twine that is, that is individually spliced and then tied together into uh, this fabric, and then it's hung. So it's 600 feet in length, and it's, and it's suspended in the air. This is, this is in Boston, uh, where an interstate used to separate the downtown from the, from the shore, and now they, they took that out, and this has, has replaced that. Uh, it, it really is uh, breathtaking. And it, the lights, by the way, uh, it doesn't always look like bacon. Uh, that's, uh, when it moves, it has this kinetic nature to it, and there are sensors around the art piece that as it moves, it actually changes color. And so there's these light-changing colors. It's, it's, it's a brilliant thing. So there's a picture of it in the evening, which is pretty impressive as well. Yeah, that's like being under underneath it. So the art itself is, is incredible. But actually to hear her describe her art is, is, is striking as well. She, she says of her, of her art, she hopes that it helps people feel sheltered yet connected to some limitless sky. So for her, the invitation is just to look up. She says her work has so many layers and levels of meaning, but you don't have to know any of them. You just need to be underneath it and physically experience, physically feel what it's like to be underneath it. There's a 20th century, early 20th century uh, philosopher and mathematician, historian, social advocate. His name was uh, Bertrand Russell, who said this, we, we know too much and we feel too little. At least we feel too little of those creative emotions from which the good life springs. That sounds an awful lot like a study that I actually recently read from uh, George Fox University that suggested for the first time in human history, the spread of Christianity wasn't limited by information or access to information. The Bible's been translated into more languages than were known to exist in the 19th century. We have more access to thought on the Bible, commentaries, sermons, books than would have been uh, possibly imagined by the first followers of Jesus. The local church in the 
few centuries after Jesus' day, maybe would have had a, a scroll or part of a scroll of Isaiah, maybe a letter from the Apostle Paul and a creedal statement about who Jesus was. That's what they had to go on. That's what they built their faith on. And so the study is, uh, goes on to say that the limiting factor in the spread of the gospel isn't knowledge anymore. Not here, not anywhere in the world. It's actually engagement. Engagement is the limiting factor in the spread of the gospel. It's not that we lack knowledge. It's that we lack passion. We're in the season uh, in the church where we're looking at mission, both mission individually, mission of the church, God's mission in the world. And we don't have to get far in the scriptures to see God's mission come to life. The first couple chapters of the scriptures actually show God on mission to take his good created order, created world, and, and continue to tend it toward his good intentions. That's the first mission that he gives people, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And so anywhere where that's gone awry or gone, gone undone, it's now our mission to point people back to God, to point people back to, to tending his creation toward that good intention. It says something about God. It says that God's not finished with this world, but it also says something about us. It says that he has an incredibly high opinion of us. So in this series, this three weeks, we're looking at different aspects of how we arrive at engaging in God's mission, this thing that he's invited us into to tend his creation toward his good intention. And we're looking at three aspects of that, our head, our heart, and our hands. And so last week, we began by looking at our head or our reason or our knowledge. This week, we'll look at our heart or our emotions and how that has an impact on our engaging God's mission. And then next week, we'll finish the series by looking at, at our hands or our will or our actions being part of engaging in God's mission. And last week, Jeff uh, did an awesome job and he began to talk about the truth that's woven through the scriptures that God has a mission in mind for us. And there's a logical response to who God is and what he's done for us. Because how we think and what we think about determines a, to a great deal what we do. Or said a different way, what we know will lead to us caring about something. But when an emotional component is missing, actually a vital element of our motivation is missing as well. Maybe this is a statement you've heard before. My heart's just not in it, right? Maybe you've heard that from a coworker who says, you know, the work's fine, but my heart's just not in it. Or maybe in a relationship, my heart's just not in it. Or, or maybe a task that you've been given and you say, uh, I, I, my heart's just not in the task. My uh, soon-to-be 12-year-old son, Caleb, uh, is an awesome kid, and he began swimming when he was about six or seven. He started on swim teams when he was about six or seven, uh, and he's always been a really good swimmer, technically just very precise and, and, uh, and really gets the strokes. I mean, he's really an awesome-looking swimmer. And so, uh, so we went to a lot of swim meets uh, in the last couple of years. And swim meets are, are weird. I don't know if you have any, any of you guys go to, there's a chuckle. That means they've been to a swim meet before. Uh, it, it, everybody has their own tent, and uh, it's kind of a weird thing. Uh, and even the cheering is weird at a, at a swim meet. You go to a football game, cheering's normal. It's predictable. A good play happens. Everybody cheers together. It's like a normal thing. But at swim meets, I noticed pretty quickly that cheering has this weird cadence to it. Because what you're trying to do is motivate the swimmer, but if they're doing the butterfly, half the time they're under the water. And so the cheering's not consistent like it normally would be. It's more like, go, yep, yep, yep. And I was like, what is going on? So then I figured out, I was like, oh, that's what the coach is doing. So when Caleb swims the butterfly, I get down real close, and I'm like, go, yep, get, swim, do it. And, uh, and, and so I was like really into it uh, all the time. And uh, after a little while, I was like, Caleb, do you even hear me when I do the thing? He's like, no, I don't hear anything. I'm like, well, I'm gonna keep doing it. Um, <laughs> 
because that's what everybody else is doing. Um, but, but about a year ago, uh, after all the fun of swim meets, uh, Caleb said, I, I want to take a break. I don't, I don't really want to swim anymore. He wanted to pursue some other things and try out for the soccer team and the basketball team, which we love. We love our kids uh, trying out for all kinds of different things. Um, and, and it wasn't for him that he physically couldn't do it anymore. He had all the ability, and it wasn't that he intellectually had forgotten how to swim. It's just that he didn't want to do it. His heart wasn't in it. And so for him, when the emotional component was missing, a vital element of his motivation was missing as well. It's the same with us. So if I ask you the question, how do you get your heart into what it should be, what would you say? How do you muster up motivation? How do you get motivated? Well, the scripture that we've been looking at and we'll continue to look at over this three-week series actually gives us some clues into how to do that, how to get our heart into what it should be. We're looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to focus mostly on verse 1 today. And for those of you that weren't with us last week or, or maybe as a refresher for all of us, uh, Romans, uh, this, is a, this is a hinge, a pivot point in, in the book of Romans in Paul's letter that he writes to the church in Rome. For the first 11 chapters, he's building truth upon truth upon truth about who God is and who we are. And then from here on, from 12 to verse 16 till the end of the book of Romans or the letter to the Roman church, he, he says, that, well, this is what we should do as a result of who God is and who we are. So this is an important pivot in the story. And what he's saying here is, is we have a mission to be a part of that God's doing something in the world and we've been invited into it and we've been invited into living out God's good and pleasing and perfect will. We've been invited to help creation tend toward his good intention. So let's read uh, Romans 12, verse one. Listen in as I, as I read this. It's in your bulletin or up on the screens, but hear this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. I think too many times we make a, a strained distinction between between emotion and logic, especially in our spiritual life. If something's emotional, maybe it's bad, and if it's logical, it's good, or maybe we flip that around. If it's logical, who, who knows? But if I feel into it, then that must be good, and we pull these things apart, but Paul doesn't seem to be doing that here. Jim Keller, who's uh, on our teach team, you guys probably know him. He's a counselor in town. He's actually leading uh, the teaching at the Herndon campus through this series. And he, has, uh, he said something recently, a quote, and I just love it. He says, truth isn't emotional, but it comes wrapped in emotions. Truth isn't emotional, but it comes wrapped in emotions. I love that. And I can give you a couple examples. Here's one. Last week, the New England Patriots won the Super Bowl. If you're a sports fan, that is a truth, but it comes wrapped in emotions, mostly negative ones, if you're me. <laughs> Let me give you a little bit better one. Here's a picture of my son, my youngest, Joe Slee. Here's the truth of this picture. This is my son sitting on a police motorcycle before an Orlando Magic game. That's the truth. But it's a truth wrapped in emotion. Here's what's going on behind this picture. Nine months ago, my son came home from Haiti. And from really the moment he came home, he began to verbalize in English. He said he wanted to be a policeman. So last summer, 
when he started to verbalize, I want to be a policeman, was right about the same time that there was a lot of tension between law enforcement and particularly the African-American community. There were videos coming out of violence and protests that were flooding in and response to previous events that were coming out, videos of people being mistreated, misunderstood, and then videos followed that of, of uh, providing facts about how to act in a traffic stop if you're African-American so that you don't get yourself in trouble. It was an incredibly complicated time. So my son is a complicated time. So my son is an African-American and wants to be a police officer when he grows up. That in and of itself is a complicated statement. So him sitting on a police motorcycle next to one African-American police officer and one white police officer is a truth wrapped in emotions. The truth we find in the scriptures is also wrapped in emotions, and it's somehow, sometimes it's hard to pick out. So that's what we'll try to do over our next few minutes together, try to pick out the emotion in what Paul is saying. Paul begins Romans 12 by saying, keep an eye on God's mercy in light or in view of God's mercy. This is what Paul's been building throughout. Remember, truth upon truth upon truth. We talked about some of these last week. God loves you with this unchanging, everlasting love. It's not based in your performance. It's simple truth. You matter to God. But more than just mattering to God, you're completely and perpetually forgiven by God. In God's eyes, you're never defined by your past, your bad choices, your mistakes, your upbringing, your social status. You're made new in Christ through his sacrificial love and not just forgiven, but accepted as well, adopted in as sons and daughters, part of the family, full privileges of a beloved child, freed from death so that now we can live by grace to display his grace, truth upon truth upon truth. So now Paul says, in light of knowing that truth, I urge you, an urge. This is a completely emotional language. This is an emotional word, parakaleo. I urge you in light of God's mercy. He's pleading with us. He's appealing to us. He's exhorting us, begging us, beseeching us to respond. Paul is calling on us as believers in Jesus to respond wholeheartedly to whatever we know about God. He's saying whatever you know, whatever you can glean about who God is and what he's done through Jesus, whatever you know, respond wholeheartedly to that. He says, wrap your understanding of the truth of God's mercies in your emotional response, in your love, in your loyalty, in your mercy, in your grace, in your zeal. What Paul is saying is knowledge isn't the end, it's the means. He says in light of God's mercy, Go live. People will come into my office from time to time, uh, and I get to have this conversation relatively often. Uh, people will, will be at a crossroads in their life. Maybe they're graduating high school or college, or maybe a profession change, or even they've moved to town and, and things have been uh, different in their lives. And they're asking the question, what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? And by the way, this is one of my favorite conversations. I love love having this conversation. And so if you find yourself at one of those crossroads, if there's anything that I can do to help, uh, you've got my email, uh, call the office. I'd love to sit down and chat with you about this. But how I begin that conversation, and so if you're gonna set up a meeting, I'll give you some homework. You can go ahead and start working on this. The thing that I, that I begin with is, well, what are you excited about? And then I ask, if God were to give you the desires of your heart, 
if he trusted you to be obedient to him with, with all your gifts and talents and, and, and treasure and all of that, if he would give you the desires of your heart, what would your life look like in five years? And then we just talk about that together. And what I'm doing when I ask that question is I'm not just looking for the words out of their mouth. I'm actually looking for the light in their eyes. Because I think too often as Christians, we can be dutiful but really dull. I mean, I think we can be, we can be obedient but, but not passionate. I think we can look for ways of like, okay, I learned a little bit about God and this is his character. And so, okay, cool, I'll just I'll, I'll follow that. But the, where's the light in the eyes? Where's the joy that comes from that? Remember that Helen Keller quote from last week, life is a great adventure or it's nothing? Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is the second indication of the emotional level of God's mission, his call. This word pleasing is actually a redundant term. In, in English, it doesn't read this way, but in the Greek, it's, it's good and pleasing, goodly pleasing. Paul is using a, a, a word of redundant to let us know that God's mission, his call on our lives is something that he's greatly pleased by when we accept. He has an emotional response to our following him. It's like a father with his children. If a father's working on a project and a child comes in, uh, if you're like me, if you're a dad, like you'd love for your kids to join you in whatever the project is. Come along because I'd love for them to share the story with me. Whatever happened can become something that we remember together, not just something I'm doing over to the side. This is what Paul is getting at when he says God is pleased when we live this way. So he's inviting us to live sacrificial lives. That's the project that he's invited us into. Lives that are sacrificial where we recognize the needs of the people around us aren't more important than our own needs, but they're just as important. And lives that are holy. Lives that are set apart for the purpose of displaying his character in this world, not being conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but being transformed, looking different for the sake of living in a world that people are looking for hope. And, and we might live in a way where they say, man, I, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to miss that. Why do you respond that way? I could never respond that way. I, I need to know more about that, living that type of life a holy life set apart where we can display God's character and invite in as many people as possible. Remember, we said this a couple of weeks ago, Christianity, boring, outdated, doesn't really matter, doesn't make a difference, only if we live like it, but not if we're different. And the adventure that we're invited into, the adventure that this life is called to be, that's actually what we're built for, to live lives that are sacrificial and holy. That's why it's pleasing to God. That's why the adventure is pleasing to God because it's what we're built for. And the result of us joining this adventure and living lives of sacrifice and that are holy and set apart, the result will be joy. There's a song that we sing around here pretty often. Uh, it's called uh, Joy Before Us. And spoiler alert, we're gonna sing it in a couple of minutes. But um, uh, in case you didn't know, you likely didn't. It was actually written and composed by Andy Simons, who's our worship pastor, and he makes his way out here 
uh, from time to time. Uh, and, and just as a total side note, uh, really to everything I'm talking about, um, we have some of the most talented artists and musicians uh, and creative people at this church. I, I just, it's an honor and a privilege to be around them. They work so hard, uh, including uh, Dave, who's our uh, worship minister here at this campus, how he leads us and how he creates. He, a lot of the songs we sing are written by him as well. And uh, I, I don't know, he's probably in the back somewhere and probably won't even hear this, but I think he deserves a round of applause for how he leads us. So um, I'm just seeing if his head will pop out. Um, I'm thankful to, to be able to walk alongside these, these folks these, and, and to, to see them use their creativity for the gospel. It's, it's awesome. But um, So Andy writes this song, Joy Before Us. It's built on uh, Hebrews 12.2. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. But here are the words to the song. For the joy set before you, you came to our rescue. And for silver you were sold, yet the thieves get heaven's gold. He who finds life will lose it, but in losing, we're finding out there's joy waiting for us. You set joy before us. And I know for some of us in this room, that statement sounds absolutely ridiculous. Because what you're going through right now is not bringing joy. Your circumstances are not resulting in joy. Maybe what he's calling you to, your part in his mission, what he's inviting you into, him tending his creation toward his good intentions. It might be resulting in inconvenience at the least or a sacrifice you're not sure you're willing to make at the most. But the result will be joy. And we can know it because we know the end of the story. Knowing the end of the story is why Paul in 2 Corinthians says, I can have joy in these light and momentary troubles. And if you're wondering how he defines light and momentary troubles, he was being put in prison and beaten repeatedly because he was telling people about Jesus. So those are his light and momentary troubles. He says, I can have joy in those because, because I, 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 they're nothing compared to what is coming. And so I don't put my hope in what is seen, I actually look toward what is unseen. And what is unseen is Revelation 21. He will wipe away the tears from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or pain, crying. The old order of things will pass away and be replaced by a new. But it won't always feel like that's true. And maybe right now for you, it doesn't feel like it's true that there would be some day where there isn't mourning or pain or, or crying Maybe for everybody else. Maybe this is God's promise for everybody else, but not for you. Maybe you're feeling that this morning. And here's what I would say. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry if you're struggling right now, but please, please don't struggle alone. There are times when your only option is to borrow someone else's joy because although you know what's true, it certainly doesn't feel like it's true. This may be the most compelling, the single most compelling argument for Christian community, for the church that has endured for 2,000 years. And there is a lot of, of compelling reasons why the church matters, why it was God's primary vehicle for displaying his character and, 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 and sending out the gospel. But this might be the most compelling one of all. You don't have to go to past this one to see the importance of Christian community. There are times when the joy you need, you just can't muster it yourself and you need to borrow it from somebody else. And if that's you right now, please hear me say you're not alone. 
18% of the U.S. population, the adult population in the U.S., suffers from anxiety. 6.5% of the adult population in the U.S. suffers major depressive disorder. You are not alone. And in seasons when you don't feel the joy of following Jesus, you've got to borrow hope and joy and peace from someone else, from people around you. It's important that you get around other people that love Jesus and love you so that you can borrow their joy, listen to their stories, see their smiles, figure out their hope. If you're not in a Summit Connect group, if you're not in Christ-centered relationships, if for no other reason than this, and I think there are a lot of other reasons, but if for no other reason than this, get into one so that you can borrow someone else's joy because there's going to be a season when someone needs to borrow yours. See, when Paul says, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, it actually can be read very introspectively, but Paul really never meant it that way. And there's not a good word in English uh, for what Paul was saying here. So you'll have to bear with me. I'll have to use a certain vernacular uh, that I'm not really comfortable with. But here's essentially what Paul was saying. Hey, all y'all, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. All y'all offer yourselves as a single living sacrifice. He's calling us together. He's calling us into community to support each other through this. Because there are times when the joy you need, you can't muster on your own and you need the person sitting next to you. So if you're following Jesus and, and it's leading you to, to feel either exhausted or, or feel less than love for the people around you, my encouragement is for you to realize that you're not following Jesus. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give rest. Jesus says, love your neighbor. He also says, love your enemy. And so if you find yourself exhausted or, or, or feeling left out or alone or, or feeling hatred toward anyone and you think you're following Jesus, you're not. You're listening to some other voice and getting around other people who follow Jesus, who love Jesus, and at least like you, will help you so much. You'll be able to drown out the loud noises that aren't true, and you'll be able to hear truth again. Remember that Janet Eichelman quote, she says that she uh, hopes that her art helps you feel sheltered yet connected to limitless sky, that, uh, that her work has many layers of meaning, but you don't have to know any of them. You just need to be underneath it and physically experience, feel what it's like to be underneath it. It's the same with God and what he's doing in this world. There's always so much to know so much to learn, so many things to grow. We can't plunge the depths of, of who God is and what he's doing in this world. We can't understand him. We're finite. He isn't. But at its core, God's invitation is to feel what it's like to be sheltered, yet connected to something limitless. So following Jesus, joining him in this mission in the world, inviting others into that shelter, it doesn't mean knowing everything. It just means trusting that what comes next with Jesus is better than what comes next without him. And following Jesus doesn't mean doing everything right or being all right. It's being sheltered by the God of limitless love who doesn't turn from you in disgust or, or, or disheartened, but he opens his arms to you every single time. He made the first move in love. He came to live and love and die and rise again for you. God's love is that kind of love, that sacrificial love. It shines most brightly in the life and the death of Jesus and so we're invited to reflect that character, that, that character of sacrifice. That's what John was getting at, 1 John 4, 19. 
we love because he first loved us. That's truth. But it's truth wrapped in emotions. And the world outside this room deserves to know that truth. So we're called as individuals, we're called as a church to join the family business, the mission, to take the created world, everyone and everything in it, and continue to tend it toward his good intentions. How do you get your heart where it should be? You know just enough about who God is and what he's done for you that you care about the world around you. That you're motivated to be a person that, just, that doesn't just know too much and, and feel too little. Because here's what I believe about the world around us. The world around us isn't just looking for the words from our mouth. It's looking for the light in our eyes. So let's be people on mission who wrap truth in our emotions and we take the good love of Jesus outside this room. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, uh, for, for the challenge of your word. Thank you for Paul urging us to live lives that are sacrificial and, and lives that are holy, lives where we see the need around us and lives where we choose to reflect your character in this world for the world to get a glimpse of who you are. I pray that every opportunity we can, we wouldn't be people who just know too much and, and feel too little, but we would feel the need of the world around us and want to feel joy in the truth of who you are that we wouldn't leave here as people the same, but changed by your truth and feeling the joy of your salvation. To borrow from the psalmist, restore to us the joy of your salvation so that we might teach transgressors of your way, so that we might invite as many people home as we possibly can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.